0: Hi, Sarah. Here we are then marking a year under COVID restrictions. On the 17th of March last year, France went into lockdown for the first time, you remember?
1: Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of from one day to the next, I remember. I I, I kind
0: of remember the feeling that it might be temporary. Yeah, (laughs) but the restrictions lasted, didn't they? Yeah, some, some things have changed since then. Of course, France, decided to reopen schools didn't it last June contrary to a lot of countries around the world and that's a bit of a relief for parents like us I think because uh, I remember feeling the strain of trying to homeschool and work on a computer it was a bit of a nightmare
1: yeah yeah and even just managing the kids running around not being able to go outside yeah I mean that's definitely different
0: yeah but you know in some other ways it feels like we've hardly moved on at all
1: Yeah. In terms of the virus itself, um, intensive care services at hospitals in the Paris region are again saturated. They've started sending patients elsewhere.
0: Yeah. And it's all the fault of the English variant, Mm. isn't it? You know, just when France reckoned it had got a handle on this original COVID virus, then the variant comes along and it seems to be more contagious, um, probably more serious and has sort of sent the country almost back in time.
1: Yeah, yeah. One of the worries is that it seems to affect younger people, those under 35, more than the elderly, Mm. the elderly who make up most of the patients in intensive care during last year's peak. Now the age is going down.
0: And this is all adding to what is already a tough time for young people. Um, some in their early twenties have been called the lost generation, and I remember President Macron back in October last year. He he talked about it not being fun to be 20 in 2020. Now here we are in 2021. It, it doesn't feel that much better. Yeah,
1: no fun being being a 20 year old these days. There's there's been a focus here on mental health problems amongst university students in particular. There are 2.7 million of them in France. And until the end of January, they all had their courses online, many are living alone, you know, in tiny studio apartments, these chambres de bonne, Mm. and reportedly up to a third of them are suffering from depression, anxiety, loneliness, that kind of thing.
0: Yeah, and so not doing so well in school. Uh, Mm. Many of them are running the risk of dropping out altogether. There have been several uh, suicide attempts on campuses, and all of that's not being helped by the fact there's a real shortage of psychologists attached to French universities. There are fewer than a hundred of them. So One per 30,000 students.
1: Yeah, not very many. And students are also facing financial trouble because of COVID restrictions. Like their part-time jobs, you know, to to help make ends
0: meet then restaurants and bars have all but disappeared. Exactly, and some students are saying they can't even feed themselves. And we've seen some really shocking videos of students queuing up for free meals in Paris. The government reacted to this and lowered the cost of meals in student residences to one euro. And some restaurants themselves are pitching in, uh, like Le Reflet, that's in Paris's Marais neighbourhood. It's already a, a bit of a unique place because its mission is to employ people who have Down syndrome. And when it became clear that restaurants were going to stay shut for some time, Le Rufflé rallied around and started producing restaurant-quality one-euro takeaway meals for students. Mm. Mike Woods went along to see how it's working out.
2: Chef Sarah prepares the meals. Ines puts them into boxes. Ines has Down syndrome. The restaurant has a mission to show that people with mental disabilities are capable of doing a lot of what anyone else can do. Restaurant manager Olivier Bellutini says it wasn't much of a stretch to go from that to doing something to help students. It
3: fits with the values of the restaurant. It also sends the message that people with disabilities can also help those without them. The idea is to keep our culinary identity and offer the students a fresh and wholesome meal with an appetizer, main course and dessert.
2: The boxed meals are loaded into paper bags set on a table near the front door. Ibrahim, another employee with Down syndrome, stands by, waiting for students to start to come pick up their orders. I like serving in the dining room, preparing in the kitchen, and that if somebody needs help, I help them. One of the first students to arrive is 21-year-old Laurine Vandevelle. She studies literature at the Sorbonne.
0: I come here regularly. It helps to save money, and you eat very well for one euro. It's impressive. I have a scholarship, but there are many students who have lost their jobs. What I find hardest is the isolation. Here you get some of the social contact that's been lost during COVID. As a student, that helps a lot. ça fait du bien en tant de retrouver ça.
2: Most of the students are reluctant to talk about their situations, but some drop hints that the meals are a big help. I'm coming here for like past 2 weeks. Even though I'm traveling for 40 minutes, it's worth it. So yesterday I got two meals and today two meals. It's okay for like 2 days from starter to dessert. So It's more than enough for two days. Regu Jayasamin is a 23-year-old from India. He's been studying business in France since 2019. Though he has trouble with the language, he's found France's student support services to have been valuable throughout the epidemic. Yeah, at first they gave some aid. There is like a housing assistance. They also had some like a student aid that was helpful. Yeah, these are the things and also like some... Food assistance with groceries and everything. It was also very helpful. Est-ce que vous l'avez pas, ça m'intéresse? Et après, sucre vanille. Il y a des chocolats des bois. Crème vanille, c'est
1: très bien. Tu veux, mm, je prends les deux.
2: Parfait. Deliveries continue at a quick pace in the restaurant, with the help of donations from suppliers. The team makes about 50 one euro meals every Thursday and Friday. They estimate that by the end of March, they'll have prepared about 1,000 meals for students.
0: Eh bien voilà pourquoi. Merci beaucoup. Merci. Passer une bonne journée. Au revoir. Au revoir. Merci. Now, it's not just students who are having a hard time under COVID. The French Observatory of Inequalities last year found that young people, so the the 20 to 24 age group, were suffering the bulk of the economic repercussions of the coronavirus crisis. Mm. Yeah, they are they're much less likely to have permanent contracts, and so they're more impacted by the high unemployment and the job insecurity and so young people have been protesting in recent days. Some are getting so angry over the situation they've taken to print. Mm, as one does in France. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Maxime Lido, he's a 22-year-old student at Sciences Po. He's just published a book called Generation Fracassée, The Crushed Generation. And he really lashes out against a load of things. The universities that were closed for so long, the remote learning, the, the loss of part-time work, the lack of internships because, you know, know, none of these officers want to have a young and potentially COVID-ridden person uh, in their midst. Um, And then, of course, there's the lack of all social life, you know, the football matches and the concerts cancelled, no nightclubs, restaurants, museums, the whole thing. He blames the current government for all of this and the baby boomer generation, not least those who protested in May 1968, who are now in their 70s. He writes, they travelled, they polluted, they left the country in debt, they ruined the economy they had a mm. great time. <laughs> yeah, the list is long, yeah. they were young and insolent at the time, and they 've turned into today 's old farts <laughs> quite a quite a litany <laughs> yeah yeah he 's very a uh, li- very literary guy. He explained himself recently in an interview with France Inter, Public
2: Radio. People who
0: defended the slogan, it's forbidden to forbid, are now the first to call for bans and restrictions, he says. All these people who for years were anti-conformist and had the freedom to be contradictory, well, they're quietly putting on the slippers of conformity. Freedom, he says, has fallen out of fashion. So
1: really angry there. Um, I mean, whatever you think of that, it does have to be said that despite the president's, you know, professed sympathy for young people, the government hasn't really done that much to help them.
0: Yeah, and it's a tricky one, isn't it? Because young people are the future. And even if people like Maxime slam May 68, remember that at that time, it also showed how a really disgruntled young generation could create a political crisis. Mais il est bien court le temps des cerises Où l'on s'en va de cueillir en rêvant Des pendants d'oreilles Cerises d'amour, robe pareilles Tombant sous la feuille en gouttes de sang Mais il bien court le temps des cerises pendant de corail, qu'en cueillant, rêvant... So, 150 years today, the Paris Commune was launched. The Commune de Paris, when the working class took over the capital. Yeah, it was an insurrection, maybe rather than a revolution. Certainly, it isn't remembered in the same way as 1789. In a nutshell, the Paris Commune is the name given to both the uprising and to the municipal council that they put into place afterwards. It was a reaction to France's surrendering to the Prussian army following a three-month siege. During that siege, from September 1870 to January 1871, Paris was brought to its knees. People were literally starving.
1: Yeah, legend has it that they ate animals in the zoo.
0: Yeah, quite, quite gruesome. And while a new pro-monarchist government had been elected to negotiate with the Germans, some Parisians, the poorer ones in particular, refused to give up the fight. So on the 18th of March, 1871, the revolutionaries took over government buildings and seized power. And, and they had a pretty radical agenda. Yeah, they wanted to give women the right to vote. How radical can you get? Mm. They defended equal pay. They requisitioned empty homes to give shelter to the homeless. They offered citizenship to foreigners who were elected to the commune. Mm. Now, the revolutionaries stayed in power for just 72 days and it all ended in a week of terrible bloodshed. At least 20,000 communards died on the barricades or were shot by firing squads.
1: And, and so all of this, though, was a new form of government, right? Led by the people, for the people, mm. not royalists, no emperor. Mm. Um, but they were pretty authoritarian and ruthless, holding on to power, which, which makes for kind of a complicated legacy.
0: Yeah, totally. There's now a big split between right and left on how the Paris Commune should be remembered. Paris's socialist mayor, Anne Hidalgo, and her team have organized a number of commemorative events, although some on the right think that they're a bit too close to celebrate what they consider is an anarchist movement. Mm. One upcoming event is the planting of a memorial tree in Montmartre, where the revolt began on the 18th of March 1871, in a square called Place Louise-Michel. Ah, Louise Michel. She's one of the most famous communards, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And a revolutionary feminist, anarchist and writer. So she was born in 1830, the illegitimate daughter of the son of a lord and a servant, so already a radical beginning. She became a teacher and spent her life defending education for all. She opened schools in working class neighbourhoods in Paris. In her memoir, she wrote that the role of school teachers is to give people the intellectual means to bell, which Hmm. she did, joining the Paris revolutionaries from the outset.
1: So was she involved in the actual battle for the Commune de Paris, as it were?
0: Very much so. As well as helping as an ambulance driver and using her oratory skills to rally the masses to take up arms against the government, she also fought on the barricade. She even hatched a plan to assassinate the chief executive of the French national government, Adolphe Thiers. That earned her the nickname the blood-seeking wolf from her detractors, of course. So she herself, though, survived the bloodshed, right? She did, yeah. She was a survivor. On the 24th of May, during what's known as the Bloody Week, she actually handed herself over to the authorities in exchange for her mother's release. She was then tried by the War Council in late 1871. She was found guilty of trying to overthrow the government, which she freely admitted to having Mm -hmm. done. In fact, in court, she asked uh, to be killed, to die a martyr, But along with some 10,000 other communards, she was deported to a penal colony in New Caledonia. So she stayed on the island for seven years, and she was an active supporter of the Kanak revolt. Actually, we've talked about that on the podcast before. Indeed. And having experienced, though, what she saw as the failures of the 1871 insurrection, she turned to anarchism. And when she returned to France in July 1880, following a general amnesty of the communards, she continued her revolutionary activities and became a, a leading figure in the anarchist movement across Europe. In 1883, at a protest in support of the unemployed, legend has it, she made a flag using an old black skirt and a broomstick. And that was the earliest known use of the anarchist black flag. Oh, wow. The birth of the flag. Exactly, she defended the cause right up to her death in 1905, and she died something of a revolutionary heroine. Uh, more than a hundred thousand people attended her funeral. She'll always be linked to Paris, and in fact, she's the only woman to have a metro station named exclusively after her.
1: Alison, there's a war of words going on in France these days. Sarah, when is there not? <laughs>
0: I mean, so what's this one about?
1: Well, so this one is around this concept of Islamo Gauchisme or Islamo Leftism. Have you heard of it?
0: Uh, absolutely. The yeah. higher education minister, yeah, Frédéric Vidal, has called for a study to identify this phenomenon in uh, French universities. I remember mm-hmm. the education minister, Michel Blanquer, said it, the whole thing was causing havoc. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it didn't mince his words. So, w- you know, tell us a bit more. What is Islamogoshisme?
1: Well, so it's not exactly a set thing. So the mm. concept was coined by a French philosopher in the early 2000s to describe a, an alleged alliance or affinity between leftists, so like the anti-capitalist class revolutionaries and Islamists. Um, it's been used by politicians to blame leftists for supporting terrorism or at least not condemning it enough.
0: And recently it's re-emerged around the murder of uh, teacher Samuel Mm -hmm. And also this anti-separatism law, which aims to crack down on uh, Islamist uh, ideology.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's not an official term. Um, Islamogoshisme, though, has been embraced by the right To criticize the left. Mm. Um, Some are saying this current government eyeing elections next year is reviving the term to make overtures to the right. Um, It's definitely been thrown at academics in particular. Many academics, including the institutions themselves, have denounced Vidal's call for an investigation, saying that it's an infringement on academic freedom and that kind of thing. Mm. But all of this has raised, once again, criticism of academia in France, um, particularly those studying race and racism. They're being accused of tearing a part French universalism, of importing ideas from abroad, from the United States in particular. Um, I called up sociologist Sarah Mazouz, who studies race and racism, to talk about some of these issues. And she told me that she first heard the term Islamo-gauchisme outside of academia back in 2015.
3: It was said by uh... Prime Minister Manuel Valls, just after the, I think it was the November attacks, or maybe after the attacks against Charlie Hebdo. The 2015 attacks. Yeah, and he tried to single out sociologists, saying that they have a culture of excuse, and that there was also like coalition between, you know, leftist and Islamism. And he he used this word.
1: This idea that, that the leftists were too sympathetic to the radicals and the, and the terrorists and sort of putting the blame on the leftists. Does that criticism have any truth?
3: You might have found in the 70s some groups at the extreme left thinking that maybe, I don't know, maybe the Islamist revolution in Iran was also an opportunity to create a, a, a wider upheals Uh, uh, and rich revolution it was maybe something but it it was you know few people and not you know this mm, huge and influential thing within academia and there's also this they they conflate the thing that you might have you know some activists interested in that, and academia, and the idea is that academia is also activism. How do you react
1: to that as an academic, as a sociologist?
3: I think it's a way to, to attack the fact that we critically address uh, social issues, instead of saying we don't want to have criticism, they try to delegitimize our work by saying that it is uh, ideology and activism.
1: Studying racism in France is not exactly mainstream.
3: No. <laughs> what drew you personally to it? Of course, there's, there's something which was pretty unconscious. I didn't articulate that to my own path. I mean, uh, because I'm French and Tunisian, and I grew up between Europe and Tunisia. I have been studying in the French safe, so I'm, a, I'm kind of a Product of the Republican school and universities, but I had to face, especially while living in France, some elements of the fact of being outsider within, so to say. I mean, it was very punctual. I don't want to give like a, the impression that it is so uh, important, but sometimes. So, so there's a personal aspect, and
1: then you're you're drawn to these issues. Yeah, looking at racism. Obviously you find the people who are going to support you and your advisors and that kind of thing but it, it you know how, how what's been that experience just within academia
3: I mean at that time in France you had studies on racism but they were working on racism without using the concept of race focusing only on racism as you know a belief as an ideology and not looking at the structural aspect of racism.
1: Being what? I mean, that's a very technical term, structural, like, what do you mean?
3: Yeah, like the fact that you can have racism produced by bureaucratic decision, by behaviors that from people who are not actively racist, who do not adhere to racism, but they just produce it without even uh, being aware of that. It's extremely hard in France. I mean, the idea of race in a country that
1: really is sort of built itself ideologically around this idea that race doesn't exist, right? And very, very specifically this universalist idea. How how do you get around that or how do you start addressing that in, in a context where supposedly it doesn't exist?
3: So at the beginning, each time I presented my work, I gave some time to explain what i meant by race so yeah you have to sort of define it for yourself exactly and at that moment it was accepted once you defined that there were debates but there were not this the attacks we are seeing now. I mean, for a long time, I feel
1: like in France, I mean, academia and other, the, the way people see social relationships seem to be very much in a, like, a Marxist look of things. It's all about different class relationships and this idea of gender and race and class all have something to do with each other. It's a lot of people appointed saying these are ideas coming from the United States. They're coming from the outside. These are not French ideas.
3: I mean, if we look at the term racialization, which is also used in sociology to analyze and examine the way in which a society produces racial differences. This word was coined by François Fanon, who was a French thinker, of course very involved and engaged with the the Algerian revolution, but he was a Frenchman. And then, of course, it was used by British sociologists and then in the US as well, and it came back to France. So it's also a way just to use the US in order to say it is not for us. To say that talking about race, showing how different things such as gender, sexuality, race, class, etc, etc, intersect is not something that is relevant in the case of French society. We are actually facing a global context of attack against critical race studies, against intersectionality, and we can see things uh, pretty similar in other contexts. What's the French specificity? I think the French specificity is that you have this strong uh, idea of color blindness, which is very easy to use to prevent from engaging with race issues, because you can say we are already a colorblind society, so we don't need studies on race and racialization. And you've got also the whole way in which France perceives itself as, you know, the opponent to the, the US culture. And on this topic, it's very easy to say we are trying to maintain our exception, our independency, etc. As somebody who studies these
1: things and obviously believes they need to continue to be studied and is important, the reaction to it, I mean,
3: how do you experience it? As the whole backlash you are facing today is significant in telling that what we are doing is useful and, and has a kind of, you know, strength. If we want to have like a kind of optimistic vision of what is happening today, at least people are talking about that. And we have also the opportunity to explain Uh, more precisely what we do and what do we mean by using concepts such as race, intersectionality, etc. So it's also a good opportunity.
1: Do you see that expanding beyond academia?
3: I think so. I saw on social media how people now react when you have someone showing that he or she does not know what "racisé" in french means for example
1: which is raciser means uh, sort of it's a way of talking about somebody from a, a minority background
3: yeah it's a way to to say that someone is inferior because of his or her minority background and now people especially among you know young generation see when you have, you know, I don't know, a TV show and people are saying things that are not true about that or trying to distort, you know, the meaning. So it's good because I think that if we keep on explaining, not always to reply to our opponent, but at least to explain what we do, it has a kind of social effect and a political effect, of course.
1: that's it for Spotlight on France this week. This episode was mixed by Yann Baudela.
0: We'd love to hear from you. Why don't you email us with any comments or questions to spotlight.france at rfi.fr.
1: And if you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. You can also find us on Instagram at Spotlight on France.
0: Spotlight on France is a production of the English service of Radio France International and we'll be back in two weeks' time on Thursday, April the 1st. And that's no joke.
1: No joke. Until then, you can find previous episodes at RFIenglish.com or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Bye, Alison.
0: Bye-bye, Sarah. (music)